0: Good evening. My name is Ryan Scherzinger, Senior Outreach Associate for uh, APA. Welcome to Tuesdays at APA. Uh, An after-work lecture series, APA holds one Tuesday a month. Uh, Tonight, I'm pleased to introduce Barbara McCann, who I may not need to introduce to many of you, as I feel many of you probably know her from around town. Uh, But anyway, sometimes you learn something new from from bios. Uh, Barbara McCann served as the founding executive director of the National Complete Streets Coalition, which works to develop and advance the adoption of policies to make streets safe for all users. Uh, her just released book, Completing Our Streets The Transition to Safe and Inclusive Transportation Networks, tells the stories of transportation practitioners and agencies that have succeeded in expanding their project delivery systems to produce multimodal projects. Uh, and reviewers have called it uh, the definitive book on how communities can work together to make streets safe for all users. And I will remind everybody that it is for sale in the back when this program is over, and the proceeds go to the National Complete Streets Coalition. Uh, McCann is a member of APA, and in 2010 co-authored the best-selling planners' advisory service report, Complete Streets, Best Policy and Implementation Practices. In 2011, the New York and New Jersey section of the Institute of Transportation Engineers recognized her with their Transportation Advancement Award given annually to a non-engineer uh, for contributions in advancing transportation programs through outstanding leadership. Uh, Barbara founded McCann Consulting in 2003 to work with government agencies, nonprofits, and researchers, authoring numerous, report, authoring numerous reports and articles on transportation, health, and land use. McCann is also a co-author of Sprawl Costs and editor of The Option of Urbanism by Chris Leinberger. Uh, prior to establishing her own firm, McCann served as Director of Information and Research at Smart Growth America, uh, where she authored the report Measuring the Health Effects of Sprawl, the first research report documenting the relationship between sprawl and obesity. Uh, she also worked as, at CNN as a writer and producer for 13 years during her first career as a journalist. Uh, she lives here in D- Washington, D.C. with her husband, Bob Bloomfield, who's also in the audience this evening, uh, and before we get started, let's just please ask that you hold all your questions until the end of the presentation. And now, if you just please join me in welcoming Barbara McCann. Thanks, Barbara.
1: Thanks, Ryan. So, let's see, can you hear me okay? Is this mic working? Okay. Um, thanks, Ryan, and it's great uh, to, uh, to be here at, uh, at APA. Uh, we've, I've, they've been a part of the Complete Streets Coalition from the very beginning and uh, have really helped uh, make our, our success work. Uh, so what I'm going to talk about t- today is uh, my, it's a whole book, and you know, doing a whole book in a single presentation is actually quite difficult, I've learned. Uh, but uh, what I'm going to talk about today is one of the major themes of the book, which is closing the gap between the adoption of Complete Streets policies and the practice of actually building our roads uh, in a different way. Uh, And we're in a situation where Complete Streets policies have really taken off. There's more and more policies adopted every year. Uh, We now stand at about half the states and more than 500 local communities uh, have Complete Streets policies. Um, And um, they are communities of all sizes, uh, big cities, small towns, Suburbs are very suburban jurisdictions are very have many of them have policies, uh, and they're all over the United States. There's actually also a pretty big complete streets movement in Canada, uh, but uh, in the United States, you'll see. I'm very proud of the fact that it's not a coastal thing. It's not just uh, you know the lefty coast kind of a kind of a movement. We see it's small towns and big cities all over the United States adopting policies. But what we also see is that in some places the policy. Policy adoption process really takes off, and they start to change the way that they build and design and plan all their roadways. In other places, a policy gets adopted, and then nothing much happens; it just sits there. And this has been a problem from the beginning, and this is not atypical of many many uh, social change movements that they that they stall. Um, so I was really interested in what the difference is between the places. Why is it that some places adopt a policy and keep going and really transform their road-building process, whereas in other places, not much goes on? So that was part of why I wrote the book. I did a lot of research. I talked to a lot of different practitioners uh, in communities all across the country, uh, elected officials, citizens, to try to find out what was going on. Uh, And so I'm going to start by talking about uh, a kind of a a negative uh, example. which uh, I, I'm feeling self-conscious right now because there's a lot of AARP people in the audience. <laughs> AARP has been a big part of the Complete Streets Coalition and has really contributed to its success in many ways, but was also there very, very early on and helped pass one of the first state laws uh, that we got passed in 2009. The state of Hawaii adopted a Complete Streets law. This picture is actually from a, a, a rally around the city of Honolulu, which has a very successful policy, But the the AARP people were out there working on getting a policy adopted at the state levels. A huge accomplishment to get something through the state legislature. They worked a lot with the bicycle advocates uh, and with public health advocates and got a pretty good bill through the state legislature that calls for creating complete streets across the state of Hawaii. It requires the State Department of Transportation and the county departments to adopt their own policies to make sure that all of their projects, all their future projects, were supposed to start, I think, in January of 2010, uh, they were supposed to start to build all their projects to th- be thinking about all the users um, from, from that date forward. And it applied to a wide variety of different uh, kinds of construction. Uh, and it, the, the law even has an implementation step in, in, in the law itself in which it establishes this task force. That would look at what needs to happen in terms of changing the design standards and changing the procedures and coming up with new measures of success. Uh, So it seemed like a really, really good, uh, a good start um, for Hawaii's policy. And so this task force that was specified in the law was formed, and it included people from the state DOT. Do I have a pointer here? Yes, I do. Uh, People from the state DOT and from the county the county, so the practitioners, as well as the organizations that were part of trying to get the law passed. Uh, but the, the state DOT was not super enthusiastic about Complete Streets, and they kind of dragged their heels on getting, on, adopt, on uh, appointing the task force. And there was pressure from some of the, the, org- the groups that had organized for the bill, but it took a while. So by the time the task force started to meet, they only had six months to do their work before they had to report back to the, to the uh, state legislature uh, with their findings. Uh, so that was kind of the first uh, first issue they had. Um, now one of their um, one of their their tasks was to look at design standards. How do you design the roads so that they're they work for all users? Well, they very quickly got bogged down in that. I talked to people who were members of the task force. Can you guys see me okay? It's oh, I see what's happening. This light oh, lights over here are coming on and off. Okay, well we'll have a light show. Um, that uh, members, I talked to members of the task force, and they, some of them said that that they really got stuck on the design piece because it was such a huge task, like coming up with new designs. And the it's tough for the practitioners to hear from non-professionals about you know how you're going to how how the road should be designed. And so in their final report, they made this statement, which they just they basically gave up on coming up with new design standards in this short time frame. Uh, and instead, focused on coming up with some principles for complete streets. So they did issue their their final report to the legislature, and it's the core of it is ten principles for basically why complete streets is a good thing. Uh, and members of the task force told me they thought it was it wasn't objectionable, but it was very generic, and it really did not help move the ball forward in terms of what needed to happen next. It didn't have clear recommendations. Uh, and was just a more general statement of why this is a good thing without really getting into the practices, the everyday practices in the department that would would need to change. So after this report came out, basically not much happened at the state level. A few uh, divisions did a few good projects. There's been a little bit of change there, but as far as any really wholesale review of of how the Department of Transportation assesses its roads and builds its roads really didn't happen. Uh, In early 2012, the state senate held uh, some hearings and a briefing about what's going on, why haven't we seen any change, uh, and expressed some frustration. Uh, Surprisingly enough, right around that time, the state did fulfill their obligation to issue their own uh, complete streets policy, and this is it, or this is a piece of it. And basically what they did was they took the 10 recommendations from that task force report and put them into this paper. They converted the principle into a question of consideration. Have you considered this issue? And then they have these little check boxes, yes or no. Uh, This is not a really effective way to affect the project delivery process at a state DOT. There's just a lot going on, and, and this is not uh, going to really get you very far. It does have a section at the end about explaining your exceptions, explaining your no's. Um, but as far as I know, this has never really been used. Uh, I, have, I really haven't heard since this was issued, and in fact, it's, you can't even find this on the website. I, I was given this by my member of the task force. Um, I, I really haven't heard anything more uh, from what's happening uh, in Hawaii. So what happened? Why is it that, that uh, this policy, which started with such great promise and had so many uh, organizations behind it, why didn't it, why didn't it uh, proceed? Project delivery is really important to transportation agencies. And the people on the task force with the DOT were like, we were really busy. We have projects to build. So we really didn't have time to figure out how to do this policy. There was a political transition. The governor who signed the bill left office, and a new governor came in, appointed a new transportation commissioner who wasn't that interested uh, in complete streets. And then the bill itself, well, it had this task force, which was a good start. There was really nobody, after that task force went out of business because it, it issued its report and then it was done, there was nobody to keep pushing uh, the process. Uh, and finally, what's really most important is that that, that initial process did not succeed in building ownership inside of the State Department of Transportation uh, for, for complete streets. Um, it just didn't, the, they, were, they got the engineers' hackles up uh, around the design issues. It, the 10 principles, which many of which had to do with health and livability and in the environment, were not things that the professionals necessarily felt like was their job. Uh, and so they didn't really buy into it and so not a lot happened. Uh, Thankfully, there are lots and lots of places where Complete Streets has succeeded and where we've seen a lot of change happen, and I talked to many people in those places, and I came down to three conditions that will result in a successful uh, transfer of a policy from paper into practice and into projects, and that's what I'm going to talk about uh, in the rest of my talk, and these, these Three items are the ownership of a new vision of what transportation projects are going to deliver, the creation of a clear path to get from an automobile-oriented transportation project delivery system to one that is oriented towards all users, uh, and creation of sustained political will that will keep supporting the change during the, the somewhat difficult period in which, uh, during the implementation. So I'm going to talk first about building ownership of this new vision uh, and, and what that takes. And before I get into it, the, one of the really important points is how hard this is for the transportation sector. I think how many people here have been working in transportation and trying to change it for like a decade or more, right? Like a lot of people in the room, right? And it's, it's really frustrating, right? I mean, it takes a really long time, and it's, you try a lot of things, and it doesn't move. And part of what's going on is that, and the public health people kind of taught me this, is that the transportation sector is very project-driven. We have the Interstate Highway Act of 1956. It says, it has the word policy in it, but it's really a map of projects of all the interstate highways that we built all over the country. And all of these systems were put in place in order to facilitate the building of roads and the movement of cars. Uh, And the policy piece kind of followed that. Uh, so the whole process has been driven by uh, this project focus. And what we want to see happen is we want to see that flip. We want our transportation delivery system to start with a outcomes, with with a better health, more better more economic development, safety for all users, create systems that will help us get there and then build projects. So it's really turning upside down the traditional way that transportation has been delivered. Uh, in the United States. And so that's one of the things that makes it really hard for practitioners. The second thing that makes it really hard is that most practitioners in most of the United States and most people in the United States drive pretty much everywhere they need to go. And the people who are not driving are usually people who don't have a lot of choice. Uh, and so uh, this, this survey was very eye-opening to me. This was of transportation practitioners, uh, planners and, in, and engineers in Oklahoma and Texas. And the there were many questions, but one of the questions was what, what is it about complete streets that causes resistance to the adoption of policies? And these practitioners said other modes, the most common, the third graph here, some of you in the back can't see this, other modes are irrelevant, costly, or ineffective. Ouch, right? Uh, if that's a starting point and you're saying, hey, we're going to create a livable community and everybody's going to be biking to school, they're going to be like, are you kidding? Are you out of your mind? And they're going to just go back to doing their, doing their jobs. So there's a real fundamental barrier uh, that needs to, be, needs to be overcome in many of these communities. So how do we build this ownership? Um, there's uh, many stories and many things that can be done, but I boiled them down to uh, creating a, a visceral understanding of the needs of, of uh, the different modes reframing the problem that transportation professionals are solving and then focusing on an existing priority of theirs, uh, which, is, which is safety. What we really want is we want the practitioners to relate to this guy standing here on the median as much as they relate to all of these many drivers uh, in the car so that they really have a sense of, of, of what his needs are. Uh, and uh, this is a picture of James Simpson, who's the head of the DOT in New Jersey. And he tells a story about moving to a walkable neighborhood and going from having a motorist perspective to having a pedestrian perspective. And it was a real eye-opener for him because he had always driven everywhere, and suddenly he realized that, that there was a different, different set of needs. Uh, in the city of Seattle, when they started to look at Complete Streets, they realized that all of their staff in the transportation department lived outside the city and drove into work every day, uh, and so didn't really quite you know, get the multimodal uh, vision that they were trying, trying to, to do. So they started to look at that and started to hire in some more people. Fortunately, you don't have to move uh, people in order to get this, this sense of, uh, of the needs of other users. It can also be done through uh, walking audits, uh, bicycle trips, uh, uh, what am I trying to say, uh, study trips to, to other other locations um, around the world or, or within the community. Uh, one of the workshop instructors for the Complete Streets uh, Coalition workshops brings a wheelchair with him to every workshop that he does so that he can put engineers in a wheelchair and ask them to, uh, to go down a sidewalk uh, in it. And he says there's, there's just no comparison for getting a strong, able-bodied person, putting them in a chair, and they cannot make that wheelchair go straight across a steep cross slope. And suddenly, the the importance of getting the ADA requirements right and getting that cross slope to be not too steep makes a lot more sense to them, and they're much more motivated uh, to do that. So that's a really important piece. And a lot of this creation of, of, uh, of this visceral understanding really what, what we're doing is we're expanding their view of what they are responsible for. So that they, in the past, have been responsible just to here, just to the curb line and to the roadway. And uh, people in the back may not be able to see, but this this uh, man is walking on a, uh, on a grass path alongside the roadway. But that transportation engineers and planners need to take responsibility for the entire right-of-way and for everybody um, who's using it uh, in many different places. And... This is actually a story that I tell in the book uh, from um, Missouri. Uh, or I'm sorry, this is from Louisville, Kentucky, uh, about a, trying to get a, a sidewalk in near a, near a school for the blind. Um, and then finally, the other way to really convert people to the Complete Streets approach is to talk about safety. This is something that practitioners already believe in. They don't have to believe in In some of the other issues that many of us are interested in, things coming apart here. Uh, But safety is fundamental, and we do know that safety that complete streets does result in safer projects. And there's many, many examples of this. I just picked one uh, from Seattle that they've seen a increase overall, uh, decrease overall in collisions. We're not just talking bike and ped; we're talking all collisions. Uh, and this is true in New York City and other places. Lots of corridor studies. There's lots and lots of evidence that complete streets are safer streets. Uh, so this is really important. So the second piece of creating this uh, this this change, this shift into a more multimodal system, is having a clear path to follow. Uh, so that it's it's oftentimes what we see is we see these beautiful design manuals with these nice sketches of the the beautiful endpoint of the roadways that. Oh, and the the neighborhood and how nice that's going to look. And then we have some of these roads like I've just been shown. Well, how do we get from one to the other? Uh, And that's a lot of what the practitioners need uh, need to figure out. And there's a number of of steps to take in in pursuit of this, uh, including inclusive decision-making, understanding the current process, ending a tilt that favors automobiles, and creating new ways of doing business. So... Who was left out when this road was planned, right? You could say pedestrians, but it's actually uh, public transit users. This is Route 1 in Virginia, uh, and there's bus service into the city uh, every day, and there are really hundreds of people um, using this homemade pedestrian facility every day. So what we need to do is we need to get those people involved in the transportation planning process. And so often really the most radical thing that happens whenever you start a Complete Streets policy is a meeting where you bring together uh, different constituencies and get more people to the table. And part of the Complete Streets policy adoption process has brought many of those people to the table for the first time. So they're ready, they're primed, uh, ready to be part of of that system. Then you really have to understand the current system. What's ha- what is happening now and what are the barriers? A lot of communities do audits of their documents. Uh, you can hold a meeting uh, where you bring together all the people from the different departments and you usually find out that people don't know what each other are doing. Um, one of the really fun examples of this understanding of the process is in Salt Lake City uh, where the, they, they had a bike plan for a number of years that hadn't gotten too much attention Uh, Then the mayor signed a complete streets order, and the streets, they got a lot of attention. And so somebody from the public works department called up the bicycle pedestrian coordinator, and he said, we're doing a slurry seal. Do you want a bike? Do you want it? Maybe we could put in a bike lane. And she's like, what's a slurry seal? Uh, And basically, that's a a slurry seal or chip seal is just a, a maintenance procedure to refresh the asphalt. And uh, she spent, she quickly did some research, what is, how does this work, what are the processes, how, when, how do you make the decision, how far ahead do you know, and by learning that and working very closely with the public works folks who are in a different department than she is, she was in planning and they were in, in the public works section, Uh, They striped 50 miles of bike lanes uh, in 2011 in Salt Lake City without spending a dime. It was what they were already going to do anyway, so this was existing money. So it was really about drilling down, figuring out the process and procedure, and taking advantage of it to, uh, to make a change. And a lot of times what happens when you're investigating these systems, these systems, is that you discover all of the biases that are already there. And this is a diagram from uh, San Diego uh, where they talk about an entrenched web of policies that favor automobility. And I could spend a lot of time talking about these, uh, but I won't, Uh, but things like level of service standards, which is a, a measure of traffic congestion that many projects have to meet. Uh, traffic impact studies that require developments to add extra lane capacity. Just all kinds of things. And so you need to really look at those and change them, because otherwise what happens is you do one beautiful multimodal project with a lot of work, kind of uh, uh, giving up on a lot of standards and making special exceptions. And then you have to do it again, every single project. And I think that's what we've been doing for the last about 30 years in the United States. So we have to really change those systems so that it becomes more routine Uh, and what some communities are doing is that they've created whole new systems Uh, and one of the ones that we like to talk about at the coalition is uh, the charlotte uh, city of charlotte north carolina they have this six-step planning process and the first few steps are really figuring out what needs to happen including uh, being inclusive, what are the gaps in the transportation network, and doing all of that before you ever get to the point of defining, uh, defining your street classifications uh, and that sort of thing. So third piece of this puzzle of moving from policy into practice is building of sustained political will. And I'm going to talk about this one in the context of a story, kind of to bookend the Hawaii story, with what's been going on in Nashville, Tennessee both in the city and in the region. And this picture shows Mayor Carl Dean signing the Complete Streets Order uh, for the city. Uh, and standing right behind him is Toks Omashakan, who is, what at the time, was a bicycle pedestrian coordinator. Uh, he was elevated, that was in the planning department. The mayor pulled him out of the planning department, gave him the title of director of healthy living initiatives, and put him in the mayor's office. It helped that they had a big grant from the Centers for Disease Control to do this, but it really gave a signal to everybody in the city that this was really important to the mayor and that it was about health. It, was, it wasn't just about, you know, amenities for a few bicyclists. It was about health for everybody in the community, and they have really serious health problems uh, across, across uh, uh, the Nashville area. At the regional level, the Regional Governing Authority did a survey uh, of, the, of trans, your typical transportation survey, they found 90% of people in Nashville, more than 90%, drive alone to work, and they have one of the longest commute times, car, time spent in the car of any, any metro area. So you would think that what they would want would be more roads, right, and less congestion so they can get there quicker. No, what they found in the survey was that the most common items, these three across the top, that people felt were important transportation problems to solve, were a lack of transit options, a lack of walking and biking options, and poorly planned development. And they were able to use this clear, clear message from the community to change the way that they choose and fund uh, projects uh, across the region. Uh, back at the city, they took the political will that the, that the mayor uh, was putting forth and they created a new design manual, uh, Major and Collector Street Plan is what they, they're calling it, uh, which sets up a whole different way of, of looking at the, the community context, looking at who's going to use the roadway, and then building roads that, that have all the elements needed for all the users. Uh, at the same time, over in their public works department, they created a checklist that they are now using so that every time they're doing a repair, they look for opportunities uh, to make change. So they're really getting to that creating the path piece uh, in, in Nashville. Uh, and they're continuing to build community support. They do neighborhood transportation plans in the city. And this is a slide from one of those meetings uh, in which they talk about Complete Streets, why it's important, why they're doing it across the region. And then they have the neighborhood help decide wh- how, the ga- how the gaps are going to get filled in in their own neighborhood. Like, what, what are the priorities for putting in sidewalks? I think. Nashville went something like 30, 40 years without building a single sidewalk, so they have a lot of backlog uh, to uh, to put in. But they've really been building that community support as well as the leadership support. And so what we see happening in Nashville is a lot of change all over. They don't, they're not just there's not just one or two signature projects you can look at. All over the city, there's pieces going in. And this this picture shows both a bike lane and a and a transit a brand new transit shelter. Um, these figures are from the city's budget, where they, tr- they used about 60% of their transportation funds for sidewalks, bikeways, and public transportation. At the regional level, that uh, the regional governance, their new process I referred to to pick projects, they went from a situation where they had about 2% of the projects had a active transportation option in them to now the new five-year long-range transportation plan as 70% of the projects have some kind of a, a active uh, transportation element. So you're really seeing a tremendous shift uh, in the culture of these agencies and in the look of, of the cities. And it's really from these, these three keys of, of building the ownership, creating a clear path, and sustaining political will. Uh, and while we hear a lot about the a lot about design, and there's a lot of conversations uh, about the, how we can better design roads. A lot of my message is that, yes, design is important, but what's behind these design changes is often a champion inside a transportation department who's figured out some of these secrets to making change in their agency, so that the road network is the, what we see happening on the ground is a reflection of the the desire of the community for not just uh, not just moving cars, but for safer streets for everyone, for economic development, for more sustainable and more livable communities. So, anybody have any questions? <laughs> Here comes Ryan, the man with the. You have
0: a question? Just show of hands.
1: It was a lot.
2: Um,
3: I found growing up in Atlanta that one of the keys... Atlanta? Yes. That's where
1: I got my start on this whole thing. Counter
3: Park Native. Um, All right. Awesome. That uh, one of the secrets to bikeability and walkability is places worth walking and biking to. Yes. Complete Streets is within the right-of-way, and I found in researching that a lot of the maintenance for sidewalks is fobbed off on the property owner, as though the main function of a sidewalk is to be crossed between your house and your car parked in the street. So what Incomplete Streets is addressing this? How are we building sidewalks that will be maintained systematically rather than ad hoc as they are still right. in Atlanta, New York, places right. like that?
1: right. Yeah, that, that goes back to English common law. With uh, many many communities in the United States, the sidewalks are the responsibility of the adjoining property owner, uh, and it's a it's a big problem and it's a big barrier. It's one of those systematic things uh, in that policy web that get in the way. Um, we see a number of different approaches to the, to this. Um, in some places, um, they are they they lower the, they're lowering the assessments. Um, Duluth, Minnesota is one actually where they they've been having. They, the property owners are responsible for the building and improvement, and they, they've lowered those assessments to make it easier for people to deal with it. Um, other places, the city is taking back responsibility and taking full responsibility for um, building the roadways and building the sidewalks. So Charlotte um, is one of those. Um, they're, they are uh, creating sometimes creating a special fund. Uh, that, that neighbors can, uh, can apply to so that then it's the neighbor, neighborhoods that really want it that, that get that first. Um, they're figuring out ways to help with maintenance. Um, Chicago actually has a, has a kind of a fun program uh, where they, they've gotten volunteers. A lot in the Northeast, or really in the Midwest, a lot of it is, is, is maintenance. It's snow. It's clearing snow. People don't want sidewalks because so they have to clear the snow. Uh, so they come up with a system to help get the snow cleared, and they have priority corridors where the city clears the snow. So uh, it's an evolutionary approach. Um, ideally, every place that adopted a complete street policy would immediately take full responsibility all the way to the curb, but of course, that's financially really tough. And most places work their way into that over time. So, But you're right, that's a very important piece.
2: I... Um the Nashville example that you used where the main impetus was health of the community, like rather than, trans- I don't know if rather than transportation mm-hmm. issues is too strong a term, but that, <clears throat> that, I mean, I know there has to be a, a mixture of the of the two forces they should work together, but my <clears throat> I'm a little concerned that it took that healthy issue bec- uh in my mind there's lots of transport there's transportation issues like the last um uh user sample showing that the uh even with all the congestion that people didn't want more streets, they wanted more alternatives. Mm. And
1: right. yeah, that was I, Nashville too.
2: Um, okay, yeah, but so. you're,
1: you're right, it's, it's interesting, it, communities are motivated differently for Complete Streets. Some places have been motivated by the health issue, uh, and the public health people have been really, really up front. That can be a problem a little bit, because if everybody doesn't buy into that as a reason, then especially the practitioners who are like, health, we're not in public health, um, that, that, that can, can be an issue, so that you, you do have to keep coming back to safety, I think, as, a, as the fundamental piece. Uh, and, and I talk quite a bit about, about that. Uh, other places have been motivated by sustainability, especially on, uh, on the West Coast. Uh, some places by economic development. A lot of small towns are doing it because they want to revitalize their towns and their main streets. So there's, those motivations are all really good, but I feel like we need to keep coming back to the most fundamental motivation, which is making the streets safe for everybody. And from that... That's something that the practitioners are going to be motivated by, and it's something that's fundamental to all of those other uh, goals to begin with.
4: Um, I guess my question is about uh, kind of following up on that comment about what the ultimate goal of Complete Streets is. Um, As a transportation planner, I look at streets as you know, ways of moving people around. Um, And as an advocate, I'd want more people, to see more people walking and biking. And I'm kind of in the opinion that if you can build as many sidewalks and um, bike lanes as you want, but if they're not uh, reasonable distances from destinations, people aren't going to be really using them to get around. Um, And so how does Complete Streets uh, interact with um, kind of land use planning?
1: I'm so glad you asked that question. The, the way that, trans, that transportation and land use happens in the United States in most places right now, this kind of goes back to my point about understanding the systems. The current system in most of the United States is that transportation is pretty separate from land use development. Uh, and that the, the transportation planning process is, is kind of on its own wavelength, separate from the, the approval of, uh, of, of developments. Uh so complete streets really focuses in on the transportation side of the equation. Uh but it's certainly by itself, I mean actually a good example is Florida. They've had a long-standing complete streets policy and they do have facilities, but a lot of it is not that nice because they have terrible sprawl there and there's long distances and pretty inhospitable uh uh situation. So uh but the, this is another one of these things where if you're talking to your transportation professionals and telling them they have to deal with land use, they're like, well, that's not my job. You know, and, and, and transportation money comes from the federal level. Planning of, of, of development is very much on the local level. There's a lot of splits there. So the Complete Streets movement focuses on the transportation side. Uh, but most places, once they do it a little while, they're like, oh, we need to deal with the development side too. So I actually talk about it as a gateway drug to smart growth. Uh, It's a starting point for a lot of communities that just want to create a safer environment and then they realize, oh, it's so pleasant to walk here. Wouldn't it be nice if we had a place to walk too? So I see them working together. And in fact, the Complete Streets Coalition is housed at, it's a project of Smart Growth America. uh, And so there's a lot of overlap there. Um, But I think it's important to focus because the transportation planning process is so tough to change and it's so complex it really does. One of the reasons we've been successful has been the narrowness of the movement. That we're not trying to solve the multiple problems of all our built environment in one fell swoop. We're focusing in on one piece of it, and then that can partner with a lot of other other
5: elements.
0: Other questions?
5: Up here. So one of the arguments we've used to help get policies adopted is that we're not asking for a special pot of money that we're right. really looking for the opportunities within the current budgets as well as the current processes to create more complete streets and and i've certainly agree with that premise overall but i'm becoming increasingly frustrated at least in my own community that's had a complete streets policy adopted for some time and has really done wonderful stuff in the development corridors those Areas that are receiving a lot of attention and investment from the private sector because they will then go out and Turn around and say by proffers and exactions you have to build The complete network, mm-hmm. but for those corridors that aren't seen any development decades can go by without any improvement so and, and that of course has huge safety implications. It has mobility implications for people with disabilities Etc. So how do we bridge that into the next? Um, right step
1: yeah, well, and if you 're in a community where most of the the road development is happening through private development where it's uh, that's that's especially uh, a tough problem, uh, you know Portland, Oregon, has had actually that same problem that they've they've done a lot to uh, improve the network um, in right in the downtown area and they've 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 picked a lot of low hanging fruit, uh, but there's some um, more suburban parts of of Portland that are also uh, lower income locations that haven't gotten uh, a lot of uh, the development and are actually harder places to uh, to do that. So they've actually started to create a system where they're evaluating projects based partly on that that level of need, on the need of, of you know the population that lives there, how many people have cars, and, and what population you have that are non-drivers and transit-reliant and that sort of thing, so that they put more projects there. Uh, so it, it does have to be that the 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 city or the township or the, the jurisdiction needs to have some money, some transportation money of their own, because they're, if they're totally relying on development, you're right, it's going to be really tough. And they can take and, and prioritize filling in that network, which is part of what's happening in both Nashville and Charlotte, North Carolina, both have systems where they, they have lots of gaps in their network, and they've created... Uh, a systematic way, a fund. And they do have special funds. They do have special sidewalk funds that they've established to fill in the sidewalk network, uh, which is usually the most common thing. So special money can be good. It can be a motivator. I mean, we've certainly seen that with the transportation enhancements program. Uh, the problem with the special money that we've had in the past has been that's been seen as the only money. It's like, okay, if you want to build a sidewalk, well, we ran out of transportation enhancements money, so you're, you're out of luck. And yes, there's billions of dollars in the surface transportation program, but you can't have any. So, so part of it is changing that so that we're getting routine projects built as part of that mainstream money. And then extra, extra special money is, is helpful too. And I will be signing books afterwards also. Anybody bought one or is going to buy one?
2: Schools. Um, lot. I grew up in an older community. Every street had a sidewalk, and I walked. I walked to school from kindergarten through twelfth grade, and I realized that that's that's a dinosaur. Um, um,
1: the cutting edge. Are
2: <laughs> <laughs> Ret- retro. Um, are you? working on, are you having success with trying to get local communities to change the standards for where they locate schools so that they are on right. uh, more in, closer into developed um, develop right. residential areas right. and providing streets
3: in the neighborhood? Is a,
1: there is a movement for that. Cause in many places, if, if you don't know, the school siting standards basically require uh, – uh, districts to put their new schools out in greenfield areas because they need this huge amount of space for playfields and all this other thing. And so there actually has been a move to change uh, change those standards. That's kind of separate from the Complete Streets Movement, which has really been about changing the transportation delivery system. But it's also, it's again one of those, there's all these many systems that have to be changed, and they all deserve attention. And, and fortunately there are, the Safe of School folks are working on that, and um, the Oh gosh, National School Board Association did a report about it, so there's there there is some work on that.
6: Hi, um, I'm from Los Angeles, California, and I was wondering um, we have an event every year now it's two three times a year called Via, and there's two hundred thousand people I biked with me uh, from downtown LA, down Santa Monica Boulevard to the Pacific Ocean. And it was great to see, uh, but at the same time, our state, um, we don't have a community redevelopment agency anymore. And so we had to get money like you were presenting from the CDC to redevelop parts of our downtown where there were more deaths from uh, lung uh, related diseases than from any other cause of death. Um, so I'm wondering, how do we capture the momentum from these uh, Ciclavia, which is like a, what do they call it? Open streets right. initiative. Uh, how do we capture that? Those all those people coming from outside the county to the middle of L.A. to bike and walk, um, like a big block party. Uh, how do we get them to become more involved in complete streets and in finding a source for funding for right. it?
1: That's a really good question. Uh, that we could have, a, we could have a, like a whole half-day seminar on that probably. Uh, the, there's a lot of encouragement programs, and actually I got started with encouragement programs at, in Atlanta in uh, the early 90s where we were promoting Bike to Work Day, and it quickly became apparent to me that we were never going to get people to bike until we did something about the streets. So, uh, so I've really mostly focused most of my career on the infrastructure side. Um, but those events are part of that getting that visceral understanding of a different way of moving about the community, and so they can be, and I think they are functioning in many communities uh, as a method of getting people to, to be out on the street and see why this is good and start to go back to their home jurisdictions and ask for the same things. I know that uh, a lot of uh, there's Alternative transportation groups in most communities, and they'll table at these events and get people's names and and uh, try to help working with that work with them. So uh, I think they're they're really helpful, especially if you can get decision makers to participate in them and see uh, how valuable they are. And I think the important thing is to even though they're fun events and a lot of times they'll do things like they have yoga classes and and balloons and all this, it's very much a party atmosphere. Is to try to keep coming back to the transportation needs and how we need to this shouldn't people shouldn't be walking feel like they can walk on the street only during a cyclovia they should feel like that they can walk on the street or bike on the street all the time and then they'll be sharing with cars but that they can get places so I think keeping coming back to that to that goal um, but I, th- I think that that those types of events are, are creating a new underlying support uh, for this uh, this movement—that's—that's um, that's really valuable.
0: Any other questions?
3: You mentioned snow clearing, and oh. uh, I, I have a question about that.
1: I was just in the Midwest. <laughs> had lots of conversations about snow. Clearing. Um,
3: in in my community, which is nearby here. Um, they don't do snow clearing for, for any pedestrian or bicycle areas. And, in fact, when they do plow, they, ended up, they end up sort of closing the, the openings there right. for, for pedestrian facilities. Can you um, tell us some good examples of where they're doing it right?
1: Yeah. if Actually, the coalition is, – is Laura – is she out there? The coalition is working on putting together a snow summit right now of, of snow communities – both those that have questions and those that are coming up with solutions because this is like a constant, constant issue. Um, I don't have, like, the answers uh, yet. We do see uh, in, in the Midwest, which gets a lot of snow, part of the answer is snow storage, like figuring out where you can, where you can, can uh, put the snow. And uh, there's lots of different solutions from just, you know, giving some places just give up on the bike lanes and use the bike lanes, which maybe is not the best, uh, the best uh, alternative. Um, Some places truck it out. So there's a a lot of different pieces to it. Uh, The first step, though, is really getting the decision makers to understand what a big issue it is. Uh, And uh, St. Louis Park, uh, Minnesota, did a walking tour. They get a lot of snow. It's harder to do here because our snow is sort of intermittent. But there, they get snow pretty much almost every year. Uh, They did a walking tour with the city council and the heads of the transportation department after a big snowfall. And they saw the places where you know, the, the snow had been, the plows had created this huge wall between the sidewalk and the bus, and the bus stop, and uh, all of that. And um, my understanding is that they have, they keep talking about that. That sort of was cemented in their memory, and they've been trying to come up with ways uh, to deal with that. Some places get snow plows, the special little snow plows that just do sidewalks. Minneapolis plows their, all their bike trails uh, in the winter, and they're usually plowed before the roads. So part of it is that building of the commitment to do it, and then we're still figuring out um, a, lot of the, a lot of the solution for it.
5: I'm just sort of curious as to whether, you know, um, the woman, Jeanette. uh yeah, Khan. Yeah,
3: in New York, how mm-hmm. she, like her philosophy of sort of doing temporary things yeah. and seeing how yeah. it works. If that's something that with, you know, with the roads or
5: complete streets, if that's something that's...
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, what she's talking about is in New York, uh, they have put in, they've made a lot of changes by putting in temporary facilities. They just, they use planters and bollards, just temporary uh, uh, paint, uh, chalk really, uh, to, they're creating new little parks and they're changing the, the, the streetscape. Um, and then they see whether it works, they make adjustments, and only after they've done that, they, they just kind of throw that out there, only after that do they go through the planning process and, get, uh, and have a more formal uh, process to make that permanent and find the money to really do it. Um, and I, I think it's fantastic. Uh, and one of the things that's really different about it is the, the flexibility of trying things out and seeing whether they work. So much of transportation planning has been around. You look up figures in a book, and you do exactly what the book tells you, and you put that down, and that's it. You know, it's kind of blinders, and people are really tight and kind of scared to try things, and that that really opens up a quicker and different way to do transportation planning. So so we see other places, maybe not doing it. New York certainly done it more than any place, but um, in Boulder, Colorado, they 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 do a lot of experimentation. Uh, with e- even with a little bit more permanent materials, they try things, and then after they try them, then they put them into their design manual if they work. So they didn't, they didn't go through the process. Some places have gone through multi-year processes of writing these huge, long design manuals uh, before they do anything. Uh, and that slows things down, and I don't think is always that effective. So, yeah, so I think it's very cool what they're doing. And they're doing that a lot to get more public space, which is a very different um, kind of a goal because they have very little public public space
0: compared to the number of people they have. So, anyone else? Yeah, uh,
3: right here. Intuitively, it seems to me that there should be a strong relationship between health and public safety and complete streets. And I'm wondering if there's hard data, you know, numbers that mm-hmm. that. Uh, can be pointed to. Maybe it's in your book. I haven't read the whole thing, but I'd be interested to know whether there's numbers that you can point to that indicate that there's a strong argument mathematically.
1: Mm-hmm. You mean between the, the safer streets help people get out more that then improves health?
3: Yeah. Improves like that, health right? and also improves safety. Less accidents. Mm-hmm.
1: There Actually, uh, there is. There's, there's some really interesting studies that the more people who are out biking and walking, the fewer crashes there are, the fewer, uh, the lower the rate is of bicycle and pedestrian fatalities. Uh, and that's, that's, there was a big signature study in like 2006, and there's been some confirmations of that. And a lot of it is the drivers start to see the non-drivers. They see the pedestrians and the bikes, bicyclists and the people getting on and off the buses in a way that they like if The book Traffic actually is a great book that's about kind of the psychology of what people see and don't see when they're driving and how you, you don't, if you don't expect the bicyclist, you just don't see them. Um, but in these communities, and, and DC I think is one of them, uh, where people start to see those different users. So there is there's, there actually is documented evidence.
3: Yeah, no, I agree. I'm just looking for the map. Yeah, if there is any. Yeah, and I, I but,
1: cite that study. That particular study is in, is in the book.
3: It's sort of a corollary. Oh, you mean like question. a like a
1: percent? Like if you yeah, like a correlation, stuff. so yeah, that you really can point cool. to
3: something that says if yeah. if you do if you spend the money and the effort to do this, mm-hmm. here's what you can expect right. as a result.
1: Right. Yeah. There's uh, a lot of attempts to do that, in all, not just with the health and safety equation, but with the, you know, the safety and economic development equation and the, the safety and the sustainability question. So there's a lot of, lots of attempts to make those uh, connections and a lot of tantalizing evidence. Some of it is kind of a chain. Like it's pretty hard to get straight. The public health people want to get straight from complete streets policy to lower body mass index, you know, and that's like, that is a really tough chain uh, to, to, to get to. Um, so there are some studies headed that direction. Uh, and uh, there's more and more evidence, and in fact, the coalition has launched a big project to figure out the economic argument uh, and the, that economic evidence, find complete streets. And I, I have little bits and pieces of those scattered throughout the book.
4: Others? I, you mentioned a little bit about the the web of things that kind of prevent complete streets from going forward, and one of those is, like, engineering standards. Level of service and some of the like design guidelines that have been around for a while, how does the complete streets um, movement address that ingest these like entrenched standards that have favored automobile yeah. movement?
1: Well, there are a lot of different ways uh, there some some places have established like just to take level of service. They've established bicycle and pedestrian and transit levels of service, especially at intersections, so that they kind of try to compare all the modes. Some places have just thrown it out altogether and come up with whole different standards. There's a lot of different experimentation on how to do these things differently, and uh, I don't, I don't think I can go go into it in detail here. But there's there's a lot going on there uh, any with that. Um, yeah. I mean, the, most of most of the communities that that I that I've talked about, I mean. Um, Charlotte comes to mind, they've, they've, they've let go of uh, their level of service standards. Many places have reduced the level of service that they expect out of road projects down to D instead of C, which used to be typical. Um, so there's a, there's a number of those, and those are also uh, also in the book. And I, I, I feel that like we've been at an hour, so maybe we should just let people come up and ask me questions um, Separately up. We'll make
0: that our last think one. Think so? Okay. Um, yeah, just remind everybody that Barbara is selling books in the back, and she's around to sign them if you care to purchase one. And just on behalf of APA, thanks very much, Barbara, for coming out yeah. tonight.